3: Welcome, folks. Before we jump into our very special chat with none other than Sir David Suchet himself, we thought we'd better bring a few things to your attention quickly. First things first, if you haven't yet, do visit our merchandise store, which is thelaboursofercule.com, where you can pick up some damn defensive (laughs) items. Treat yourself for the new year.
2: We're also going to be doing a live show in person at the Farnham Literary Festival this very March. If you don't know where Farnham is, that's okay. A lot of people no don't. One else does <laughs> but it's in Surrey. We will stick all of the details in the show notes so that you can find it, and it would be lovely to see you.
3: If you want to mark the date in the calendar right now, it's March the 5th from 7:30 p.m. till 8:30 p.m. Come along and watch us as we wing it for an hour. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll be fine. We'll figure something.
3: Well, one more thing. We keep getting asked for more of everything, so we have decided to set up a Patreon. For those of you who are interested, the podcast will always be free, but for those of you who want more, you'll be able to do so in February. The address you need to use is patreon.com forward slash cozyaf, that's C-O-S-Y-A-F. Adam and Frankie, (laughs) cozy stuff. Because it won't just be covering the labors of Hercule, it'll be covering everything we do together whether that's uh Potthin Creek or <laughs> Mid-Potter Murders or whatever, <laughs> whatever we end up doing. But everything will be under one umbrella there. Lots of news coming about what you can expect. just thought we'd better give you a heads up on what's coming in February.
2: And without further ado, shall we get into a little special conversation? Yes,
3: we do. <laughs> <laughs> one quick note before we welcome our very special guest, Sir David Suchet. It was impossible to talk to him about some of the more resonant and important stories in which David performed as Poirot without talking about some of the plot details, specifically Murder on the Orient Express and Curtain, Poirot's last case. Many of you may already be aware of the resolutions in both of these stories, but in case you aren't, we will be discussing elements of the plots that you may consider to be spoilers. And now, on with the show. Belgravia, an overseas bank clerk, absconds with fortune.
0: How much is this fortune?
3: Uh. 90,000 pounds. No. That's a king's ransom, Poirot.
0: When it is used to ransom a king, it becomes interesting to Poirot.
3: Missed typist of 21. Where is Edna Field? <laughs> oh, no. There's good stuff here, Poirot. Mysterious
0: suicide, absconding bank clerk, missing typists. Yes, but I am not greatly attracted to any of them, Annemie. I have many affairs of importance of my own to attend to, such as Um, my wardrobe, Hastings. If I mistake not, there is on my new grey suit the spot of grease. You have noticed it, perhaps.
3: well to say that we are honored is something of an understatement this time around all our christmases have come at once because we are simply delighted to be joined for this very special edition by none other than ecu himself england's finest living actor sir david suchet i can't believe i actually get to say this to you it's been a lifelong ambition of mine to meet you welcome to the show and thank you so much for your time today God, you're very welcome. It's very nice to be with you and nice to be
2: with you, Frankie, as well. Thank you very much. Uh, And I I echo Adam's sentiment of honour and excitement and without sounding very creepy. I don't mean to sound creepy, David, I promise. I've seen you a few times. I've came to your Poirot and More tour before and I've come to a book signing of your book, which I proud. Yes, I have on my shelf very proudly. And also, I sometimes, and this is, oh, I'm, okay, I'm just going to say it. I've tweeted you some of my tattoos in the past.
1: My goodness me. <laughs> oh, goodness. Is that
3: where they came from? Yes. <laughs> it's that Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You may not remember either. You were actually part of one of Frankie's most special days in her life. Frankie, would you like to remind?
2: Oh, <laughs> to- they- <laughs> about- <laughs> you probably do a hundred of these and probably don't remember, but... It just so happened that on the day of my wedding, you were on uh, Good Morning Britain, I believe, and a friend of mine's mum works in the wardrobe department there, and she got you to record a message to me wishing me a happy wedding day.
1: I I remember now. Hello, Frankie. And I'm here, David Suchet, just in case. Uh, I just want to wish you the most happiest and happiest and happiest of days uh, on your wedding day. I wish you love, and a wonderful future. And that was you. <laughs> yes. Well there we that are. Was me. Do you know the funny thing about life? The thing that you get to a certain age and stage when you realize that actually it, things do very often come in full circle.
2: <laughs> yes. And
1: there we are now talking about an occasion that you never ever would expect now to be with me today. But nope. to relate <laughs> I love them. I love them.
2: Me too. <laughs> it- And it is a complete honour. So I think actually it was the best day of my life. And then I got married and that just added to it. (laughs) So thank you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It was all downhill. From the moment, <laughs> you know, yeah. You all done that. But now it's up again, yeah. so you know uh, things are roundabouts. Right <laughs> um, Frankie actually walked down the aisle to the Poirot theme as well, and uh, Did. there was video footage of that. So, uh, yeah. anyway, well, the, you can take the restraining. Scary, order, David.
1: But, <laughs> <laughs> so the most the, the funniest thing that that uh, I was ever sent, and my wife and I still still enjoy and, and laugh about it now, was a photograph of the hen party. I think it was in the north of England. I can't remember, the, but there were about fifteen girls on a hen, you know, hen party. And um, at the end of the table, there was a blow up of Poirot, a, a, a blow up doll. And I, I was seated as Poirot, you know, as a blow up doll at the end of this table. And I was told in the letter that came with the photograph that every course. Was put in front of me when they ate as well. Oh
2: wow! And where does one order one of these dolls? Uh, I for a friend. I don't,
1: I don't know, <laughs> but I expect I expect you
3: could get pretty much anything online
1: now.
2: Very true. <laughs>
3: <laughs> We're recording and it's just past the festive period. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, and a very happy New Year to you both. Thank you very much. You've just finished a run as Captain Hook in Bristol. How how was that? How was uh How was the return to pantomime? Well, um
1: in what is 2024 now isn't it so I'm just entering my 55th year as an actor. Wow. And this experience of the pantomime was my very first ever pantomime. It turned out to be one of the most extraordinary uh, experiences. I didn't know what to expect and just before rehearsal started because I didn't know anything about the genre at all. I mean my as, as you know, as probably everybody watching knows, my, my genre is classical theatre. And coming into pantomime, I was touching a discipline that I knew nothing about. And we only had one week's rehearsal.
2: Wow. wow.
1: To do the whole show of Peter Pan in London. And I was so nervous, and I do confess this, I was really, really nervous. Um, that I asked for half a day's rehearsal on my own to try and teach me the genre of pantomime. Anyway, th- all that said, I have to say that playing Captain Hook with some of the most amazing people, Andy Ford, Faye Tozer, Kerry Dupre, all seasoned pros, and, and of course Faye Tozer is the pop star with, with Steps, um, they all helped me and by hand. And I have, we were doing two shows a day for a week and a bit. So we did 52 shows in just a month and hit 90, just over 92,000 people. In the theatre. So, Smee, did you find Pan? No, but I do have my suspects, Captain. <laughs> Fatos are from Stan. Ah, uh, tragedy. Cabaret star carried to <laughs> pray. And the boy wearing sunglasses, Captain. Well, this is a tricky one, Smee. But even a man of your inferior intellect can surely fathom such a mystery. And I played Captain Hook, and I had the most fantastic time. <laughs> And when I look back to thinking how frightened I was, and compare that with the joy that I had playing it, and literally I stopped this just well five six days ago. Wonderful!
2: Wow! So it sounds like you had the audience hooked.
1: Yes. Um. Well, they, they were so, they were so generous to me. They were, they they loved it, and I played. I obviously played it with a twinkle, cool. and then in the show, it revealed myself not as Hook, and I became Poirot. <gasps> on stage as part of the performance yes because in the second half I got eaten by it's very complicated but I got eaten by a (laughs) crocodile at the end of the first half then Captain Hook comes back and you only realize at the end that it was me in disguise as Captain (gasps) Hook but the real person was Poirot
2: oh
3: are you saying that we could have seen Hercule Poirot played by David Suchet on the stage again, and we missed our opportunity. Well, he was—he
1: was—he was very briefly on stage. Um, <laughs> he wasn't—he uh, wasn't on stage for a long time, but it was enough for the audience to get a glimpse and uh, to show their appreciation of the character, which was very humbling.
2: Speaking of the stage and returning to it, you're about to go back on tour again, but this time with your wonderful show, Poirot & More.
1: This is gonna be a wonderful event for me because it's gonna give me a chance to share stories and experiences that I've had during my 50 years as an actor and talk to you about all the amazing characters I've been asked to play and the writers the so important writers that I've been asked to work with and for. So join me at the theatre as I take a look back on Poirot, of course, but so much more.
2: How are you feeling about that? How has the preparation been?
1: Well, I'm as we speak, as I've taken time out to, to speak to you this morning, I am in preparation now because I've only got uh, a week before the f- uh, three days rehearsal. And then I start in Cheltenham on January the 18th. So it's very tight uh, schedule that I'm on. But I'm looking forward to it very much. This, this whole idea of Poirot and More, the show, a retrospective, is about, obviously, it's my life, uh, my, my early life. There's the sort of shape of the show is early life moving into the world of entertainment, school, school plays, national youth theater, going to drama school, early days in rep, uh, and then personally meeting my wife in rep, then moving through into uh, 13 years with the Royal Shakespeare Theater, and then beginning television, film, radio, and everything, building up to uh, a complete revelation of how I developed the character of Hercule Poirot, every aspect of him that uh, that I can do in in a stage show. So it, it's it's a it's a great chance for, for me to go around the country to have an audience in front of me that want to know uh, not just about Poirot but about me, my life, how I work, my philosophy, my people who have read my book, for example, um, and. We have a lovely two hours together. It's it's like an evening with or an afternoon with me. And I really enjoy it. It's like sharing. And I've, I've got <laughs> um, my dear friend, Jeffrey Bonsall, sitting in a chair with me and he's asking me questions. And of course, it, most of it's scripted, but we, we try and do it in a way that it's extempore and that it's in, in the moment. And it's lovely because by the end of the evening, I feel I know the audience and they feel they really know me. It's a great chance. And this all began way back uh, in 2019, or just before 2019, at the end of 2018, when the uh, the producer, Liza McLean, uh, uh, an Australian producer, came with that idea. And I did the Quarrow and More right around Australia and uh, some venues in New Zealand as well before coming back to this country. And I didn't know whether we were going to continue doing it in England. It was very successful in Australia, indeed. And we decided to go out again on tour towards the end of COVID to try and bring people back to the theater again, Uh, which we, in some places, we succeeded very well. And in others, they were still reticent. And I was playing to an audience full of masks. Uh, because of covid and everything but that was very successful but I, then we got letters saying um, you haven't visited edinburgh you haven't visited <laughs> glasgow you haven't been to us in belfast you haven't been us in in newcastle we have and then suddenly we we realized that we have to go out again because there's a huge audience that that are asking to see the show and there's a huge desire in me also to meet audiences, because the more people get to know me, the more they will know that the provinces, in other words, outside of London, is very important to me. I love the regional theatres. I love regions in this country. I mean, it's a wonderful country. We have so many regions and and different places with almost different cultures and theatres that go... You know, we have more theatres in England per square mile than anywhere in the world.
3: Well, talking of which, you're something of a local hero where I live. I live near the Watermill Theatre. Oh, in Newbury. Um, just outside of Newbury. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you are regularly mentioned throughout the town as uh, one of the one of the names that's very you know, graciously helped keep it alive over the years, especially with your fundraising. You've done shows there. Yes, I too. have.
1: I, I really think the Watermill Theatre, I was there very soon after it started, a couple of years after it started, and I went and did a couple of plays there. In fact, I first did uh, the price there way back when I was a very young man. Before I did it again in the West End recently, the Watermill Theatre is quite unique, and it's just a wonderful theatre venue because it's a watermill, which the family were living there at the time that they turned into a theatre, and it's becoming very, very popular and very exciting to visit. And it's it's the theatre that I've. Uh, wanted to help all my career because i think it's important
3: i think the first thing i went to see there was rope and patrick hamilton play yes um, with Edmund Kingsley, who Ben Kingsley's son, and it just completely blew the place apart. It was absolutely electrifying. Wonderful. Um, but they've recently staged things like they did the Lord of the Rings musical. I don't know if you heard about that. No, they staged really? it themselves. I didn't know. That. And um, it sold out for three months straight, and people came from Japan, Germany, all over the world to the watermill. It's really revitalised the area. And,
1: um you may be
3: interested to know that um, we started our tour, the last one, at the watermill, I did. I did. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I didn't live in the area at the time. Otherwise, I would have been straight. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go
1: back there and start start that that tour in England. Actually, um, and the reason it started at the watermill because I was able to go to all the my favourite theatres that I started in my early career and
3: go back and say hello. Oh. That's amazing. Um, your relationship with Geoffrey Wonsell actually is, is what you just mentioned him there. I, I've always found him to be such a great biographer, especially of figures that I adore, like Cary Grant. Yes. When you are in rehearsal stages, are you with Geoffrey, and are you sort of deciding on the format and content with him? Is is he a collaborative partner on that kind of thing? And do you add more content and more recollections as each progressive tour? is staged
1: yes i mean we will be going down to it i mean sadly it's it's it, i could go on, i mean the the evening could go on for about four hours <laughs> and um, Line me up. Never, never go home <laughs> but we have we have to limit it and we have to keep it within the hopefully within the two hour bracket because uh it, it you know people have to get home <laughs> and we have to move on but um, it it, uh, it doesn't change that much. It stays within a regular format. And we we do not deliberately, we do not do Q&A at the end. Because if we did, that makes it a very, very long, long evening.
2: We're very fortunate in that we have listeners uh, from all over the world and that are fans of you very much and Poirot. And when we we've posted about this, so many have been asking if you're going to take the tour internationally at any point because people are itching yeah. to see it in other countries again.
1: This is this is something that comes up quite a lot at the moment, because I suppose Poirot is still reaching well, it's still if everybody watched, there'd be 750 million people all in one time. So I'm told. Um, so and that is worldwide and in 75 territories ironically one of the places where i have a huge audience and they were beginning to talk about whether poirot or would go, go there was russia really yeah and that was before that was before yeah the war. Mm. um so obviously that's not going to happen we haven't had uh, firm offers of going abroad as yet, because I think we haven't let it be known that this could happen. I think we'll, at the end of this UK tour now, I think we'll all sit round the table and say, well, what's the future of it? And should we think about going abroad? And then feelers will be put out and invitations Uh, May may come and if they're a sufficient number then I would seriously consider it yes while I'm still able
2: Well anybody listening that has a theatre in your country you know what to do now (laughs) put the feelers out get your invitations in you never know
3: Um, I was looking back at some of your earlier roles and the roles you played on the stage at around the time of Poirot and it's always fascinated me, the diversity of roles. There's a play called uh, This Story of Yours, which became The Offense with Sean Connery, which is a, a really tough watch at times. And um, you play Johnson in that on the stage. And you've played roles like John in Oliana, the mammoth play, which has a gut-wrenching ending. And I wonder, obviously, as a, a screen actor, to put yourself into these situations once and have it filmed is something. But to do it night after night, how do you prepare for the more intense roles as a stage actor? Oh, it's
1: very such an interesting question. My my stable is theatre. Mm. That's where I was born and bred as an actor, um, starting in red, going to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, uh, and moving then into West End and and regional tours, etc. And it seems that being a, a character actor, I was never ever going to play. Um the romantic leads that was never never offered to me. And I suppose because of my physique and because of my voice, it lent casting people and directors to see me in the, the heavier type of role. In other words, the more dramatic and uh, and so forth. Once Poirot and Blot on the Landscape and Freud on television and, and The Odd Film came up and gave me a, a profile that would from the producer's point of view, bring in people to the theatre to see me, suddenly I got these huge leading character roles and they are heavy in the Mm -hmm. theatre. These are big, heavy roles. This story of yours you mentioned, you've got Joe Keller and All My Sons, you've got Iago, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I wasn't doing Poirot then, but that was during my time at the RSC. But um, all these heavy roles really sit within me. But the preparation which you're asking about is very, very much from the language in the play. And then I have to take that character and if you like, become him to understand him and then live him every night. And it was very hard with Joe Keller, you get to a point you can't paint on these characters. I mean, I know I read people saying, oh, David, David Suchet, he's a method actor. He's a me- I, de- I don't see myself as that. I just see myself as trying to serve my writer. I'm not really interested in me, David Suchet, as an actor. The reason I act, the purpose that I have in life as an actor is to be serving my creator, my writer, hence my approach to Poirot, which was to be serving Agatha Christie's Poirot, and not just to come up with a version that I think people might enjoy, I wanted to serve her. So in all these roles, I can't serve my writer until I become the person that they've written about. So my, and because I've worked with so many classical writers that are no longer with us, the investigation has to come from the text. But then you know we are judged so much by our words in life anyway. They say so much about us that a text is like a gold mine to me, Mm -hmm. including punctuation, including everything. And as Poirot would say, it's in the little details Mm -hmm. that um, you find characters. And you have to go to places that are very hard. I mean, this story of yours ends up, he ends up, you discover a murderer. Joe Keller commits suicide. Obviously, you have to go to a certain degree that the audience will believe that you are in that place. So it's not easy, Adam, to answer your question night after night after night. And that's why there has come a time now when I've decided I can't do any more long runs in the theatre. I can't do eight shows a week at that emotional temperature. But I've been blessed and very very honoured to have been offered so many great roles in the theatre. A lot of them, interestingly enough, American drama. Uh, George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for example, uh, as 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 well as other playwright. My favourite playwright of all, Arthur Miller. I I somehow understand him and his writing very much. But yeah, and all these great roles, leading character roles, and. I have to thank Poirot for that because it was Poirot <laughs> that gave me the profile. Sorry, that was a very long answer.
3: No, too. no, no not A very so good only.
2: answer. <laughs> and I also saw you, I just remember, I also saw you in All My Sons as well, and you were obviously magnificent. It was a beautiful performance. Thank, thank you, you for that. Um, you. And you mentioned in there about your voice, and actually we've had a quite a few questions from our listeners about your voice work as Aslan. Yes. Uh, and also you reading the Bible yes. and doing the audio version of that. Obviously, you have an incredibly powerful, iconic, recognisable voice at this point, but how do you bring that to such well-known texts and characters to make them your own?
1: Another very interesting question. In, in every character that I play in the theatre or on film or on television, I have to find the right sound for that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I talk about this in my show quite a lot, yes. actually. In the second half of my show, I actually do a Shakespeare workshop and share with the audience how I approach a role. And what I discovered um, very early on was that not one person in the whole world, and this may be of interest, and, uh, and it's, I don't think it's even controversial, but it's well known that not one person in the world has the same voice print. In, in the same way, apart from identical twins, you can walk around London and the world say, nobody looks identical except identical twins but actually nobody sounds identical either every person per son pair through son sound person has the same voice nobody has my voice nobody has yours frankie yours adam we're all individual therefore when i study a role And I look at the language and I look at the shape of sentences. I look at how they describe things, how I would describe things, how they would describe things and learn about the way they might speak and where their voice might be centered in their body. Is it a head voice? Is it a a gut voice? Is it a deep voice? Where are they living within themselves that would allow them to speak the text on the page? And that's how I developed the voices, and how I develop my my own voice to change uh, when
3: I'm playing. Talking of following passion projects, because um, the Bible must have been something of a passion project for you, I know your faith is very important to your life. And I mean, how did that come about to be the narrator of the Bible? We have a comment from a listener, Um, She would like me to pass on to you uh, her thanks for what she considers one of your best projects. Obviously, Poirot cannot be beaten, says Laura, but she's really grateful to you for doing the audiobook of the entire Bible. I listen to it almost as often as I watch Poirot. It's such a huge undertaking, isn't it? A book that's obviously very dear to you. But how do you, uh, how did it come about?
1: I'll try and keep this as brief as possible because it's a huge, huge topic, uh, basically uh i well i'm a christian i'm i'm an actor and there came a time when i thought not only as a christian but an actor i thought you know if i want to leave something behind for uh the judeo christian community i think i would really like to put a voice my voice uh to the complete bible and I started thinking about this and let it let the, it, it germinate and until various aspects of my life. I got to meet various people. I'd done one or two religious documentaries about the life of Peter, the life of Paul uh, from the Bible. And I was with a producer and I said, do you know, I think the time has come when I would like to try and put my voice to to the whole bible and they got very excited about this and said well if if you do i know a studio very near you and would you like to come and discuss it and that's how it came about Um, once that was agreed that i should (laughs) then I realised that I had to prepare,
2: and how do you prepare? Quite a long book. As well? It's quite a pronunciation
3: guide you'll need. isn't it?
2: So. Well,
1: I did. I did actually. Having your, you would be amazed that in in the preparation, I had by the side of me my 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 laptop, my you know my notebook or whatever, going into pronunciations at every single moment. But it was, it was, it it took, well, it took me 250 hours to record. Wow. And it took me no less than, I would say, 500 hours to prepare. Because those of you who might be interested, the Bible was not written by God. The Bible was a collection of sacred books that the early church put together um, that they considered uh, would cover the whole of the um, the, the journey from the ancient Jews in early time, 4,000 years ago, right up to uh, the crucifixion of Christ and then uh, books beyond you know, like Revelation. And it may interest you to you know the book of Revelation was never in the Bible for a very, very, very long time because it wasn't considered to be part of it. And then it all changed. So that really bo-
2: is a revelation. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, the, the whole Bible is is. I think you know. Sadly, I've, I've said that it's the it's the biggest selling, most unread book in the world because it's not an easy book to read. And in the Bible itself, you will never read these words. Read the scriptures. It's always hear the word, hear, hear, and then you realise that in another part of the Bible, it comes. Faith comes through hearing. This was another reason I wanted to read it so that people could actually sit and listen to God's word in the Bible, wherever you can, you know, in the recording, you can go to anywhere and and just listen to me reading it to you. But you, I promise you, you will know that every single word, every single book, every single chapter has been carefully researched I, I spoke to theologians, I spoke to clerics, I spoke to priests, I spoke to senior uh, rabbis. Um, I talked to lots of people in the Jewish faith, uh, scholars, and I even talked to Islam scholars about, because we're all from the same root, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, we're all from that root of Abraham, and that's where the Bible starts and is. So it took a lot of preparation and I'm very grateful to hear from people who who are benefiting and will continue to benefit way after I've gone.
3: It's an incredible document, as you say, to to leave to future generations. And can't help but notice that you do bring a theological side into your portrayal of Poirot, especially in the later episodes. There are episodes such as Murder on the Orient Express and even, especially in Curtain, where you specifically brought that into the character. Were you able to have a free reign when it came to slightly developing him across from Clapham Cook to Curtin were you able to bring your own influences and stylistic additions I
1: think as time went on I was but but um <clears throat> you know I, I I always hasten to say that I, I did nothing just because I did nothing with my Poirot interpretation just from my own point of view it had to be serving Agatha Christie. For example, people say, how, how did you develop that tension with your faith in Murder on the Orient Express? Well, when I reread the book and studied it line by line and chapter by chapter, and then I got the script and then I had meetings with the writers and we talked about it and we talked about it and we realized that Agatha Christie very, very often throughout the canon talks about Poirot's faith. He says, I am a bon Catholic. I'm a good Catholic. And she actually writes that he goes to bed every night with a cup of hot chocolate and reads the Bible and says his prayers. He does that before he gets into bed and when he's in bed. Now, this is interesting that a writer should give the character like Poirot a whole uh, religiosity. You don't often get it. Uh, I don't think you get that same thing in Sherlock Holmes or anywhere else, but as Poirot would say, Sherlock Holmes is just fiction. (laughs) I I, I think that Agatha Christie definitely is keen that her readers know that Poirot is moral and has a code of moral behaviour and ethics that come from his Catholic faith. Otherwise, she would not put it in. So then you come to Murder on the Orient Express, where he is in a dilemma. Because if he actually says at one point in another book that God has put him in the world to rid it of crime when it's available for him so to do, suddenly a murder on the Orient Express, he's being asked to let how many murderers go free. And does this sit easily with a man who believes that God has given him the purpose to bring criminals to justice.
0: your kangaroo jury, your kangaroo justice, you have no right to take the law into your own hands. Miss mm-hmm. Farrell, she was five years old. We were good civilized
3: people, and then evil got over the wall, and we looked to the law for justice. And the law, Let us down. No, no.
0: No. You behave like this and we become just savages in the street. A jury is an executioner. They elect themselves. No, it is medieval. The rule of law, it must be held high. And if it falls, you pick it up and hold it even higher. For all society, all civilized people will have nothing to shelter them if it is destroyed. It is higher justice than the rule of law, monsieur. Then you let God administer it, not you. And when he doesn't?
1: So his Catholic faith, I thought, and so did the writers, uh, it would be tested and he would pray about it. He would, if he goes to bed every night and says his prayers and read the Bible. In a situation like, do I let murderers go free? He would pray. And we decided to put that in to the story and give it that moral tension. And I don't think it was something that necessarily is outside of of Agatha Christie's mind. I think she gives him that problem without actually laying it on the line. And uh, in other stories as well, in, in Curtain, for example, Adam, you mentioned Curtain. In the book, it's very, very clear that... He deliberately does not take the medicine when he's having a heart attack, he doesn't take it. Uh, he lets himself die. We talked about this a lot and that would go against his moral judgment as well. Uh, in, a, in a sense, it's, it's, he's, let, he's suicide in a way, that very end bit. And that's why he says, I'm sorry. He will meet his maker and, and, deal, and be dealt with or not in his mind and this is why he says sorry it's a it's a dilemma does he keep himself alive and help or does he assist himself to suicide and a man of that generation would see that as possibly sinful
2: Oh, gosh <laughs> such a that episode gosh that we get a lot of messages about that one i think you woke well, a lot well you know of it's the least
1: it's the least watched episode of all that's
2: it's too not hard surprising for some
3: yeah. people. Uh, people no. just don't want don't want it to end either. And I think once you once you've yeah. seen curtain, you really have seen the final chapter, and it's kind of hard to revisit sometimes afterwards, knowing it, what's coming. But... It is.
1: But I, I I have to say that, and, and it may may interest all you lovely viewers and and those who are listening, that every single episode or short story that I filmed as Poirot, I would go through the text, Agatha Christie's text, absolutely with a fine-tooth comb, underlining things I wanted to put in, in case those who were reading the novel, they would recognise certain gestures, certain even the moments where he would lean forward and say something. And I read that, and I would underline it, and then when that was in the script, if it was in the script, I would make sure that I did it. No no more so than actually in ABC Murders, when I used a lot of um, uh, Agatha Christie's stage directions, if you like, from when he was in in meeting Cust in the jail.
3: Talking about your fate being written in your hand
1: that told me some amazing things. Said I was going to be the most celebrated man in England before I died. But, But... it almost looks as though you're going to die on the gallows I said laughed afterwards said it was only a joke but I suffer quite badly from my head you know I mean there are times when I don't I don't seem to remember what I've done
0: you do know that you committed the murders? Yes. Yes, I do know that. And I am right, am I not? That you do not know why you committed them? I tried
1: as much as possible, as much as possible, with the movements, with the voice, with his whole demeanor, with his Catholic faith, how he lived, his meticulousness, This was all Agatha Christie, the whole thing.
2: We've had a lot of questions from our listeners, but one of them, uh, in keeping with this theme, from Mr. Ricky Wing on Threads, uh, he asks, if you could go back in time and talk to Agatha Christie, what would you ask her?
1: Oh, I I would spend the whole evening talking about Poirot. I have (laughs) to say, that um, just, just very briefly, I'm not an Agatha Christie reader. I don't read crime stories. Uh i i and I never read much of Agatha Christie. I didn't I only knew Poirot, for example, from the films before I when I was offered it. And I and I didn't know quite what whether I should play it. But going back to this question, what would I ask her? Um I would ask her a very interesting question, apart from thousands of other questions. <laughs> did, did you have a particular person in mind from the refugees, uh, Belgian refugees in Torquay when you were developing the character? And, and I would love to know how she developed the character of Poirot. She must have had such fun. But we also know that she got sick to death of him and she wanted to write curtain. In fact, she did write curtain a long time before she was allowed to publish it, before she was allowed to publish it. the uh, I think it was Dodd, Mead & Sons, uh, her publishers, actually forced her to, to write more Poirot novels because it became the most successful crime uh, novel of its time. And I'd like to know how she felt keeping on going, writing about Poirot. I'd love to know. Because I know she got fed up with him. And that was the area I'd love to have talked to her about.
3: Well, as you said, you've gone through the whole canon and given this wonderful gift to the world by leaving behind your portrayals of him in every story. Uh, I have a question here from Joran from Norway, who's gotten in touch through Instagram, who says, Mon Dieu, I would love to ask David, would he consider playing Poirot again if someone decided to do a new movie? Also, would he do one of his talks in Norway? So another another vote for an international tour there. (laughs) I would love to see it. I've watched the Poirot episodes a number of times. Love it. He is the ultimate Poirot to me. And there are lots of emojis, which I won't attempt to recreate for you here, but they're all <laughs> involving hearts and smiles. So. <laughs> well, that's
1: very, that's very kind of you, and thank you for those comments. I was asked when I finished the TV, I was asked if I would do more televisions as Poirot from, in, from a writers that would invent stories for me. And I said no to that because I really was Agatha Christie's Poirot and I didn't want to be anybody else's Poirot, even though they may, might be similar. In terms of whether I would play him again, first of all, I think I'm too old now to be offered the role. And if, if anybody wanted me to play the role again, they may have already asked me. But I am here to say that if a story was written for a movie, and I was offered it. I would do it.
2: <gasps>
3: Incredible! A, a, a new original story?
1: No, I would do. I would do a remake of, of one of hers. Yes, if it came me.
2: Do you have one in mind that you well, would like? No.
1: <clears throat> yes. Well, I wouldn't mind doing ABC actually. <gasps> but then we don't yes. know. I think that
3: um, I think that Ken may be doing it. I'm not sure. Uh, hmm. We we've just covered that episode. Um, I think in December <coughs> oh. uh, we've just talked our way through that episode, and uh, well, it's one of my top three episodes of all time. Your scene yep. with Donald Sumter in the in the cell oh. is well, that scene
1: was taken. Actually, that scene, you know, I mentioned it earlier. It's rather ironic, isn't it? That scene, and if you read the book and then watch the film, you'll see what I did because I took it all from Agatha Christie. Amazing. It's electrifying. But I would love to do ABC Murders as as a movie, but. You know, I don't think it's going to come my way. There have been other Poirots now, and he's moving on. So, you know, we've got to let him go.
2: Mm, Do we, though? Uh, (laughs) We've also had a lovely question here from uh, Nicolina on Instagram, who says, Poirot is a unique character, and you played him over a span of over 25 years. Did you retain any of Poirot's traits Mythology, expressions, ways of thinking, or general quirks? In other words, did you ever catch yourself sometimes and think, oh, that is so very Poirot of me?
0: (laughs) What a lovely
1: (laughs) question. Um, One of the things I do that may interest you as well is is that when I become a character, I always, whether it be television, movie or theatre, I always have one day or more of taking that character out into the street for a whole day and look at the world through their eyes. I mean, I could go out and I did go out as Poirot uh, one day, and I went to have breakfast. I I chose what he would have. I went and looked at shop windows. I went to have a haircut. I went to, and I was Poirot for a day in real life. There are very many similarities, I have to say, (laughs) between Poirot and myself. And very often I am reminded my own personality was similar to Poirot rather than the other way around. (laughs) Um, So do I catch myself thinking about Poirot? No, but I am aware still of those areas where our personalities do cross over.
2: (laughs) And and you said as well, you made the point that I think after a while, Agatha Christie got a bit annoyed with Poirot and he was a bit of a, a bane of her existence at points. A similar question from daylight Katie 14 on Instagram says, I'd like to ask, did Poirot ever annoy you? Also, what was the first Agatha like Christie read? You touched on that already. Um, but I was wondering, does he ever annoy you in his mannerisms or his his way?
1: Yes, he does. Uh, <laughs> and he did when I was filming. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, he does. Um, I got a, anno- I got I got quite quite irritated with him especially in prep at home when I'd be learning my lines and looking at the books and I go come (laughs) on and he'd say and and he would say no no that's me that's me and I'll go oh (laughs) my goodness (laughs) but uh, yeah but he he also looked at the world with very kind eyes and I absolutely adored him I really did the moments of uh, a slight irritation, you'd get with anybody you got to know. I got to know Poirot as well as I got to know any of my very best and dearest friends. You can't help it. You play a man, uh, a character for 25 years. You take him out in the street and you know what he would look at. You know what he would do at every single moment outside of the text. So, really, he became my very best and dearest friend. Monsieur Poirot.
0: It is indeed Mon ami Hastings. <laughs> I was talking about
1: you only the other day. Oh, Mon ami, Mon ami. I loved him. I was very, very fond of him. I still am. I, I adore him and I miss him.
3: I bet you do. I mean, it must be so hard to say, to wave goodbye to a friend of that long acquaintanceship. Well, the filming
1: curtain was the most difficult. Mm. Bit of filming I've ever done in my whole life because I was I was not only dying as an actor you know uh, killing off a
3: character if you like but
1: I was also saying goodbye. Mm.
3: Oh. In those last episodes, um, you were reunited with uh, the lovely Hugh Fraser, Pauline Moran, and yes. Jackson for the Big Four, and Hugh again for Curtain. How was that experience after all that time away from each other?
1: Oh well, I found it. I. I you know, and I've I've listened to other people talk about it. Listening to Pauline talk about it and Hugh talk about it. For me, it was very emotional.
0: Mm.
1: I found both as an but as much as an actor, as you know, playing Poirot. For me, as an actor, to have the team back, if you like, and I missed I missed them. Mm. Um, you know, decisions were made, and they were, I'm not saying whether they were right or wrong. It's not for me to comment on. that. But to have them back and to be back with them was was absolutely wonderful, uh, and I found it very emotional and very joyful. And we had a, a great deal of uh, conversations and chats. And the big thing for me, though, was having Hugh in Curtain with me. That I that, and I think Hugh's performance in that is one of the great television performances. That Hugh actually gives in that. Oh, in that when he
2: finds episode. Poirot.
1: Absolutely wonderful acting. It's and, so understated,
3: uh, but so beautifully done, isn't it? Oh, it's,
1: it's, it's, and what he gave me as I was dying and all through that episode was so generous and so wonderful that I will remember that
0: forever. I conceive of a plan. I will persuade my old friend Hastings to join us and we shall all be together on family is most this part.
3: You're up to something, aren't you? What? I knew it. Otherwise, why come back to the scene of our first murder?
0: Because, my enemy, I fear it will soon be the scene of another. Are you sure about this? You think I have the softening of the brain? No, no. It seems so unlikely. Another murder, all these years later, under the same roof. Maybe that is how it is. Well, can't you stop it? How do you propose that I do that? Well, you could warn the victim. I do not know who is the victim. Well, you must know who the killer is. No.
3: Well, then how on earth do you know it's going to happen?
0: I cannot say. Why not? Because you are still the same old Hastings. You have the speaking countenance, mon ami, and I do not wish you to sit staring at all the guests with your mouth wide open and give, as you say, the game away. I say, Paula that's a bit strong. I do play poker, you know. Yes, and always lose.
2: You also were very blessed throughout the show's run to have so many wonderful guest stars and people starting out in their career who have now gone on to do, you know, incredible things from there. Uh, but we have a question from Balthazar Lundgren on Threads who says, uh, can you ask him who his favourite guest star was? There have been so many <laughs> top draw actors over the years, but who was he most enamoured with?
1: Yes, well, I did, before before coming on, I, I made a little very short list. But, the, I mean, if you look at, for example, Emily Blunt, Christopher Eccleston, Russell Tovey, Jolie Richardson, Damien Lewis, Jessica Chastain.
2: <laughs> <It's> crazy.
1: Michael Fassbender. <laughs> I mean, these yeah. are big, big, big names now. But the I think the greatest fun I ever had was um, Death on the Nile with Emily Blunt because it was her first television, I think. Wow. Her f- first TV of all. And then we were doing a night shoot and she was on the camera and she was trying to work out how to, to do the scene. And then on action, she did it. And I turned round, I forget who I was next to, and I said, watch this actor. Go from here.
2: If you're implying that I stole my friend's fiance, then I assure you, you're wrong. She loved him, yes, but her feelings were not reciprocated even before he met me. He knew he'd made a mistake.
0: That was another moment when you realized that you had a choice. You have everything. But your friend, from what I understand, had him only. No. Pardon my impertinence, madame, but I suspect you are feeling a little guilty.
2: Couldn't you at least try to reason with her?
0: (laughs) Madame, I am on holiday.
2: I'm sure that we can come to some kind of arrangement.
0: No, madame, I am
1: sure we could not. I knew, I knew. And with all these names that I've just mentioned, one of the great joys of filming is to discover this incredible array of actors with such talent. And I could, just about tell you every one of those names when I was acting with them, there would be something in the back of my mind saying, yes, here's a future star. Amazing. Yeah, it was lovely. What a, what a privilege for me. What a privilege for me to be with these wonderful, creative actors at that stage in their career.
2: What? I'm, so, I'm sure the privilege was all theirs, David, to be <laughs> acting alongside you. What an amazing start. And in a similar vein as well, we had a question from Jack Dewars on email. He said, uh, when you're in a part of a long running drama series like Poirot, where you're very much the star in the focus, how does it change the working relationship you have with the directors? Did you welcome episode directors feeding into and helping shape your performance as Poirot? Or were the best experiences those where technical considerations aside, directors just trusted you to get on with it and know what is best? When it came to the character that you knew so intimately?
1: Okay, well, here's a. I will give this a little bit of a serious reply. Uh, it's a very good question and a, a very insightful question. I had to become, over the years, I had to become, not from choice, but through what I believed, I had to become Poirot's defender because there would be very many directors, I'm sure very well meaning that wanted to change my interpretation, that wanted me to be more stupid or more comic or more this and more entertaining and this. And I knew that my purpose of doing this role for however long people wanted me to do it was to serve Agatha Christie and to be her Poirot. Now in all the books, every single short story um, and, and novel, she very rarely changes his character. She changes the story and his character changes because of the story, but he stays the same person, which is why in certain stories, she will suddenly give him a wristwatch, which he's never used before. And then in the next story, he gets rid of it because he couldn't deal with it. He changes the width, of the stripes of his trousers, of his morning suit. That's a change that Agatha Christie puts in. But he never, ever changed his personality. Therefore, when directors would come in and ask me to do things that I knew was outside of Christie's character, I dug my heels in. And yeah. it did cause, uh, on one or two occasions, an enormous tension, uh, and in the in the very beginning of filming, before we started filming, and I'm I'm not speaking out of school, but I wanted to wear uh, the costumes that I was knew that I had as Poirot and chosen very carefully from what he would wear from the books, because Agatha Christie is very keen to show Poirot wearing certain items of clothing, like when he goes to the bank he wears hmm. his morning jacket and and trousers. Yeah. And I had to really fight for that right to wear what I knew he would wear, even though certain directors may have said, oh, I think that's boring. I want him to be more colourful. And I would say, no, I'm sorry. <sighs> no, he's yeah. got to wear what he wears. And I had to become his protector and his defender. And that was not easy because that depended on which director would want me to change or not. Uh, towards the end of the last few, three or four years of filming, the, they left me alone. I I had almost free reign to do what I wanted to do. But I I was his defender for many, many years, and I wanted to be, not for me, once again, I could fight his corner because of Agatha Christie.
3: Well, on behalf of the entire Agatha Christie Poirot audience, <laughs> thank yeah. you very much for keeping the standards so high. <laughs> um, just, a, just a quick uh, question, a very simple one, and I'm sure you're asked a lot, but um, do you have a personal favourite episode? Yes, ABC. ABC Murders. <laughs> yeah.
2: Thanks Good so. choice. <laughs> I think
3: it's
1: brilliant. How she how she wrote that book, where did that come from? Mm. I think it's brilliant. I love it. I, and I loved filming it and I loved reading it and... Uh, yeah, if I'm, if I'm to go back to watch any others immediately after this, being with you, I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'd like to watch ABC murders now.
3: It's so immaculately produced as well. I mean, yeah. it's, you imagine that you're watching, like I said in our review, a serial killer thriller and nothing more. And then all of a sudden you understand that there's actually another mystery happening beneath all of that. And it's just Absolutely. all a facade. It's so
1: that would be my favourite story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My favourite experience of filming, though would have to be Death on the Nile. Uh, <laughs> it, in, indeed, Blue Train. Because we were in Nice, we were in Cannes, we and then with, with the, obviously, Death on the Nile, we were in Egypt and going down the Nile. I mean, what an experience <laughs> for an actor.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, when, they,
1: when you start your life as a repertory theatre actor, which I did, um, and did all the regional theatres in my early career, little did I know that I would ever, ever be given the privilege of playing a leading role on a boat going down the Nile in Egypt. I mean, I have to say that that playing Poirot gave me the most wonderful experiences of life as a person, uh, of travel, uh, of raising my profile to give me greater theater roles. I've been very blessed by playing him and the success that the whole series had outside of me, the the, the cinematography, the lighting, the writing, the locations, the team, being with such wonderful actors uh, around me as Hugh and Philip and Pauline. What a gift for me in my life that changed my life. I have nothing but gratitude and uh, and feel very blessed and honored to have been given that opportunity.
2: Thank you for the gift that you've given us of this incredible performance and character and this iconic show. For I can't tell you, when we put the message out you were coming on, the amount of questions, praise, comments that have come in, it's blown us away. You know, we always get a lot when we have our guest stars on, but this has been next level. That the outpouring of love has been truly very well earned, clearly. But you know, incredible, and I'm I'm so sorry we're going to be running out of time that we can't read out everybody's lovely comments, but <laughs> we will send them to you, David, so that you can read them. Because oh, thank you. The outpouring is unbelievable. You are truly beloved all over the world. So thank you for everything you've given us.
3: God bless you thank you so much it's been the honor of a lifetime to have met you I can't tell you what Poirot has meant to me from childhood to now it's definitely the most watched thing in my household my children love it (laughs) their friends love it the love and respect I have for the work you've done in bringing him to life is I mean it's hard to put into words but to meet you today and to be able to say thank you so much for my lifetime with you as Poirot and um, the gift that you've given to the world i mean the outpouring of love we'll send it along to you and you'll see but yeah. i'm sure you get it all the time can't wait to see you on tour for poirot more yeah well thank you and and uh, you
1: know you're so generous and i've you touch me very very deeply thank you so much it's been lovely to be with you oh. thank you so much david thank you <laughs>
2: For anybody listening who hasn't booked yet, go and book your tickets for this tour. As I said, I've seen it already and I can't wait to see it again because it's that good. You're going to absolutely love it. It gives you everything you want and more. So, <laughs> Thank you. <here> go. <laughs> you. You can have that.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much. Lovely to be with you. What a lovely time I've had with you both.
0: They were good days. Yes. They have been good. Good days. Hercule. Poirot.